Fualsha, 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 Akharja Gale, and welcome to this week's episode of the Rebel Matters podcast. I'm your host, Anla O'Carlan, and this week's guest on the show is Breege Voyle, whose mother, Joan Connolly, was murdered at the age of 44 by the Parachute Regiment of the British Army on the 9th of August in Ballamurphy in West Belfast. When Mrs. Connolly was murdered by the Parachute Regiment, they left behind Breege and her seven siblings without a mother. And over the course of the 9th, 10th and 11th of August in 1971, murdered a further 10 civilians in what has now become known as the Ballamurphy Massacre. More and more people have come to know about the Ballamurphy Massacre in recent years, thanks to the dedication and commitment of the relatives of the victims of the massacre to bring to light the horrible events of those three days. Some of you might have seen the 2018 documentary film called The Ballamurphy Precedent, which told the story of the victims and their relatives. More recently, the inquest into the massacre was reopened and it received quite a lot of media coverage. So if you want to find out more about that, you can put the Ballamurphy massacre into a wee Google search and you'll see some of the news reports, which includes sections of witness statements and also sections of statements from some of the soldiers that were on duty at the time. As I've mentioned before on the podcast, the episodes are not extensive history lessons in of themselves and can serve as a good starting point if you want to go and find out more information about the topics being discussed. At the same time, I want to give you a little bit of information on the basics of what happened and when it happened before we get stuck into the chat with Breach here because Unlike the Bloody Sunday Massacre in 1972, which happened less than a year after the Ballamurphy Massacre, there were no media cameras in Ballamurphy on the 9th, 10th and 11th of August to broadcast what was happening to the world in the same way that the media cameras were present in Derry on Bloody Sunday. As a matter of fact, it's not uncommon for people to say that they've never even heard of the Ballamurphy Massacre and that's because the British establishment have done everything in their power to try and cover up and conceal what happened in Ballamurphy over the course of those three days. It's also very important to note that it was the same regiment that carried out the Ballamurphy Massacre and the Bloody Sunday Massacre not even six months apart and had there been a proper investigation into the Ballamurphy Massacre it's not a huge stretch of the imagination to think that the Bloody Sunday Massacre could have been avoided completely. Over the course of the chat with Breege, she talks about what she remembers from the day that her mum was killed by the Parachute Regiment, discusses how some of the rest of the victims were killed, what life was like for her and her family after her mum's murder, and we'll have a bit of a discussion about the ins and the outs of the recent inquest into the massacre. So before I play as the recording of the chat with Breege, I want to give you a bit of a rundown of what was happening in Belfast on the 9th of August 1971. And I also want to read out a list of all of the people who were killed on the 9th, 10th and 11th of August as a mark of respect and also to give you a bit of a starting point going into the conversation with Breege. You see, to break it down for you in as simple as terms as possible, the British Army were sent in to Belfast and Derry in August of 1969 on the back of the burning of Bombay Street and also the Battle of the Bogside. When the troops arrived in Belfast in 69, it was largely believed that they were sent in to protect working class Catholic areas from the types of attack that resulted in the burning of all of the houses on Bombay Street. But it was soon fairly clear that the role of the British Army 
in the six counties was to uphold the will of the Unionist government in Stormont. And it wasn't long before the British Army had turned on the very communities that they were sent in to protect. On the 9th of August 1971, the British government introduced internment without trial, which meant that the British Army could lift civilians and basically put them into jail without having committed any crime or without having to go to trial. And it was under that guise that at 5 o'clock in the morning on the 9th of August, 600 British soldiers of the 1st Battalion of the Parachute Regiment invaded Ballamurphy. After the Paras began breaking down doors looking for the people that they were looking to arrest, the residents of Ballamurphy went onto the streets and set up roadblocks to try and keep the army out. Later that day, and without warning, the Paras started firing from the direction of the Henry Taggart barracks. A man was wounded by the shooting and Father Hugh Mullen was shot dead while giving him the last rites and while also waving a white handkerchief above his head. Frank Quinn, age 19, was shot dead while going to help Father Mullen. Joseph Murphy was shot in the leg and then brought into the Henry Taggart barracks where he received a severe beating and died three weeks later. Noel Phillips, age 19, was shot in the thigh and then executed with a bullet behind each ear. Joan Connolly was shot in the face and then shot a further three times as she was lying on the ground. Danny Taggart, age 44, was shot 14 times as he was lying on the ground close to Noel Phillips. Eddie Doherty was 31 and shot while he was going back to his wife and three kids. John Laverty, age 20, and Joseph Corr, age 43, were both shot in the back. John McCurr, age 49, was shot in the head as he left his place of work at the Corpus Christi Church, only yards from the gate. And Pat McCarthy died of a heart attack after the Paras got a hold of him and fired a live round over his head. See to tell you the truth, lads. I find it very difficult reading out the names of the people who were murdered by the Parachute Regiment because of the fact that they should never have been murdered in the first place. And for the fact that their families have had to fight for so long just to be heard and to be able to shed a bit of light on what happened on those three days. I was listening back to the chat with Breach when I was doing the edit for this week's episode and at a few different points during the chat I was just well up listening to her. The parts that I found most emotional in the chat with Breach was when she was talking about what could have been and the life that they had after their mum was killed and all of the things that her mum missed out on. I'm very grateful to Breach for taking the time to share her story and I'm also very aware that it's so important that we take the time to learn about these things that have happened in the past and to listen to victims of this kind of state-sponsored murder. And I'm also glad that we can use the Rebel Matters podcast platform to spread Breeze's story and the story of the other people who were killed on those three days. And it is very important for me to mention at this point that the Rebel Matters podcast is completely funded by our supporters over on Patreon. So really, while I'm glad that the Rebel Matters podcast is there as a platform for people to share their stories, it's all thanks to 
the people who are keeping the show on the road by becoming subscribers to the show over on patreon.com forward slash rebel matters like the podcast is free and it's always going to be freely available to anybody who wants to listen to it but really it wouldn't exist if it weren't for the guests who kindly give up their time to come onto the show the people who support the show on patreon and also the work of our producer vicky langan the reason that i'm making a really serious point about this at the beginning of this episode is because of the fact that i feel so strongly about sharing stories like those of Bridge and many of the other guests that we've had on the show so a massive massive thank you to everyone who has been supporting us encouraging us listening to the shows getting in touch and supporting the show on patreon and contributing in any way to the ongoing project that is the rebel matters podcast so for all of the support and encouragement anyway i hope i've given you a bit of useful background to go into this conversation with bridge Voile. if this is your first time learning about the events of the 9th 10th and 11th of august 1971 in ballamurphy have a listen to Bridge's story. Go and find out more about what happened in your own time afterwards. Share the episode around so that more people can hear it. And don't be afraid to get in contact after you've had a listen. So, Shaw Diva Cardigale, Bridge Voile on the Rebel Matters podcast. Um, thanks a million for coming on to do this podcast. No problem. No. You know, does it get any easier to talk about the events of that time? It's it, basically what it is. Is I've over the years because I've done so many and done so much talking about it. It's like I'm talking about somebody else. So you're inclined to sort of cut yourself part of your off. So. You just go into a ream of talk and talk, talk, and then I would literally stop and then go downstairs, like after this, downstairs start making the dinner or something. Unless maybe in an hour or two, somebody might say, well, well, how'd it go? Then I'll talk about it, but it takes me a wee while. It's like I come into the zone and then I come out and it takes me a while to come back again. It's been a long road you've been on, hasn't it, like since Uh 1971? It really, really has. And I think it's the, the what you find out along the way. See, when, I don't know if you, how much you know the story, you probably know more than I do. But at the start, my daddy just told us that my mummy was, she was out looking for me and my younger sister. But uh, she'd got us, but I run away. What happened was we were still watching Ryan. There was only kids our age. I was 14, she, my sister was 12, and another friend of ours. And um, what happened was 
mommy came up to take us home and we were sand talking away to her. And next thing, the loyalist tried to come down in the Springfield Park. So all the riders roll over in that direction. I said, mommy, come on, go over and see what's going on. She says, no, 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 you can't go over there. And uh, what happened was the army fired gas. And for about seven, we couldn't see each other. And I said to my friend, she was beside me, come on, quick, let's run up and see. But when we got halfway up, I heard a shot. Don't know where it came from or where it was, but it seemed to be in the distance. And me and my friend panicked and cut through my yard, went over the mountain and down Dermot Hill into Bella Murphy. And when I got into the house, when I was actually going down Bella Murphy Road, you could actually hear the heavy gunfire, not realising that was my mummy and all the this whole start of the whole uh, campaign of murder, as you would say. But um, So I got into the house and my mummy wasn't there. My sister came in eventually. A couple of hours later, on her hands and knees, coming up Bellamurphy Road. My daddy was very nervous. My oldest sister had married a British soldier, and she had come home to get her son christened. And he was born in May, and she was home, and she was getting herself into a panic because mummy wasn't there. And as I say, the younger sister came in. I don't think she could tell us anything. From what we can gather is... Mommy gave her day neighbour and said, bring her down. And she came up Springfield Park after me. But then she met her nephews. The couple of them lived up there. And they says, go you back, Aunt Joan, if we see her, we'll bring her down to you. So she came down, she was standing, talking with other neighbours. And next thing, the army just came out and opened up and started shooting. But my daddy told us that basically what all he, well, maybe he told us because we were so young, and Mr. Taggart and Mr. Murphy got shot and she panicked and jumped up and said, I'm going home to my kids. She made a run for it. They heard shooting. They heard her shooting. She was blinded. She couldn't see. Her were shooting and never heard her again. So that's what we were led to believe all them years. But then, as people always ask us when we started the campaign, uh, why did you wait so long? We were only kids. We were petrified. In my eyes, if you could shoot your mom, uh, to me, my mommy was an old woman. She was only 44. So in my eyes, I believe if they can shoot a granny, an old woman like that, they'll shoot anybody. So you were petrified of them. And uh, so you never even thought, even entered our heads to try and find out until I had a brother. I had two brothers, but one brother was an alcoholic. And he uh, he became an alcoholic after the fact. He was uh, 17 at the time. And he had been on it for years and years, married and had family and whatever. And then must have been 30, 37 years ago. Wasn't even been that much, let me think. About 30 years ago, he decided to come off the drink Well. So that's a whole never different story. But he gave the drink up for seven years and he sort of tried to rebuild his life. So he started making inquiries and he went to a few solicitors to see what could be done. But we're all saying no. But then, if you, if you remember, on the 9th of August, there was bonfires every year, but it was like a big party celebrating. And then a riot. And then for three days of constant rioting, 
when we were kids, they never never mentioned anybody that was killed. It was always about the internees. They never mentioned about the people that were murdered. So one year there was a, a thing on St. Mary's, uh, a talk, and it was called The Forgotten Victims. And my brother says to me, come on, we'll go up. So me and him and the youngest sister went up and they were talking about the, the ninth of August and one thing or another. And they asked anybody that they want to stand up and say, no, say something. And at this stage, I would have claimed on the table rather than say anything. So Janet Murphy stood up and said, my daddy was murdered. He was shot and died so many days later. And then Frank Quinn's brother got up and said about his brother. And Alice Taggart got up and said about her daddy. And then our Pat just jumped up out of the blue and he said about my mama. So it was all over. The ones who stood up, we sort of said hello to one another. And it probably first time we ever met someone. And we just, Janet Murphy had already started trying to find out bits and pieces and she had been sending away for inquest papers and that so she said what about if we'll have a meeting and try and see what we can do so that's where it really all started so we had a meeting and all the families we got a representative most of them and I think it was actually her who just who made it brought it out that there was those 11 people murdered over those three days in Bella Murphy I don't think anybody ever realized the scope of it and if you ever see a leaflet that we have it's like a map of Bella Murphy, and you can see the way they just came down through the estate each day, killing so many people. Even Pat McCarthy, which is never, he's not, he didn't have an inquest because what they said was he died of a heart attack. But the story to Pat McCarthy's was he was an Englishman, he was ex soldier, but he left England and he came over here to, over to Bella Murphy to live. And he wanted to um, start up a youth club for kids. And I didn't know the guy because we we lived down in the Estates. We would have went to St. John's Youth Club at the bottom of the White Trap. And he couldn't believe that this um, curfew, that kids needed food and milk and bread and whatever. So he was in the local community centre where bread and milk had been delivered. And he tried to come out because he said, there's no way they'll keep us in the lettuce, bring bread and milk. But he was holding like a white flag on a pole or a white something. And the shot, the fired at him, but it hit the pole. So he, And it cut his hand and went back in again. So he waited a few hours and he tried again. Then he got out that time. But as he was cutting through Bella Murphy with the bread and milk, the powers accosted him and said, asked him what he was doing and whatever, and he told him. And the soldier then threatened to shoot him and fired over his head. At the start, we were hearing different stories. Some people were saying they put the gun in his mouth and let on to shoot him. But what we believe happened once we had finished the investigation is they fired over his head because a house across the way had a bullet in its ceiling where the bullet that he fired went over his head. The man took a heart attack. With the fright of it, they wouldn't let the neighbours come out and go and phone an ambulance. And by the time they got him to the hospital, he had already died. But on his death certificate, it was uh, he just died from a heart attack. No mention of all the rest of it. 
So in that aspect of it, we were able to get all that information out. And then we found out that, like, uh, Mr. McCarr, who was the caretaker at Corpus Christi Chapel, he um, he was an ex-army and he lost his hand in the war and that's whatever he was doing, something to do with the army. So they trained him to be a carpenter and they gave him these gadgets that he was able to put on his hand and he was able to do anything because of these different, he could, I think it was like, they put like a screwdriver in his, like a, a mechanical hand type of thing. But they opened the chapel because the wee fella had drowned in the local swimmers in the Falls Park. Oh, how you called him? And uh, they opened the chapel for him and the priest had gone out banging doors telling people to come out. So he came out and was walking up and down outside the chapel having a smoke when... At the time, people thought, didn't know why it was the army at Chatham or why it was loyalists from Curry's Timber Yard. But it actually turned, well, the evidence we have states that it was a black soldier who was seen at the entrance of Spring Hill off Bella Murphy Road. Because the streets were lined were army tanks and there were two sources at the opening and he'd been seen by different people. this soldier just opening fire, one shot, and it got Mr. McCarr in the back of the head and when he fell. But people got all confused and they thought it was from Curry's Timber Yard. And um, so basically, as it stands now where the inquest is concerned, she's two things to, to sort out. She has to decide if he was a completely innocent man. Then again, she has to decide who killed him. Because some of the the witnesses at the time stated they thought it was from the loyalists from Curry's Timber Yard, but it wasn't the loyalists that was in Curry's Timber Yard, it was the paratroopers. So that's that will probably be a hard well, it's not a hard one. Basically, the mom was innocent, but they never the chapel never even found his family. His family found out the next day in the Irish news that they called him by a his first name, but it was the wrong first name. And somebody came in and told his wife and she phoned the, the Corpus Christi Chapel because he had said to his wife, look, if the trouble's that bad over there, I'd stay in the, with the priest. So when he didn't come home, she thought nothing awful until word came the next mm-hmm. day. And his daughter actually said, till the day she died, every year she applied for his pension and every year it was turned down from the army because he wasn't killed in a war. So that woman didn't get a pension because once he died, they said because he wasn't killed in the war, they didn't know him a pension. And he lived in Andy Town. He just came down to do a day's work. So as I say, all these things all sort of took years and years. But in saying that, as 18 months, we reckon, we got the bulk of the information. We went out at the weekends and most nights. We had a meeting every week. And we would have knocked people's doors and said, did you live here at 9th of, around the 9th of August? Could you tell us what you seen? People stood crying at their doors. Couldn't believe it. Do you remember whenever the army came to Belfast first in 1969? Yes and no. I would say, I'd say I've heard of them, that they were coming, but they were mainly down on the Falls Roads. We wouldn't have seen them. 
But a lot of people that weren't out in the troubles all came to St. Thomas's School from uh, Bombay Street and Lower Falls and that. So we used to go down as kids and sort of push their prams up and down with their kids in and sort of just being nosy. And um, But I didn't really realise that they were there and what was happening until the rattans started. Do you know what I mean? And then you that's when you would have seen them. I, I can't remember where I read it, but I think I seen somewhere that you were living on the shore road up until 1966. Yes, we lived right? on the shore road in the bungalows. And we were only five years in Ballamurphy when that happened. So we were really Owens at the time. We lived, my mummy and daddy lived in the shore road in the two bedroom bungalow with seven kids. And then we got that house in Ballamurphy. And then my youngest sister was born in Ballamurphy. She was three when mummy was killed. So basically we were only there five years. And it was, it was like we were kids, it was fascinating. You thought it was a gag. You were constantly at the window watching the ratting and the army walking down the street. And my mummy, in a sense, to be honest with you, she was very focal and she would have been out there fighting with them because of her lifting young fellows or... There were rain houses, she would have been out and she would have been drowned. Load the nice and set on the, the steps of Corpus Christi Chapel because the loyalists were always threatened to come in and burn it down. So I think the soldiers knew her as a mouthpiece, you know what I mean? And I think, and apparently that actual morning of internment, she had got up. I actually was in bed and I heard my daddy saying, Joan got up, the bin lids are going, there's something going on, because he had taken a heart attack in June. So he was out of work. He was doing okay, like, and um, he, what do you call it? And my mommy got out. And we said, can we go with you? And she said, no. So me and my sister were hanging out the windows. But the streets were deserted. This stage it was bright. And my mommy came back eventually and the day. But me and my friends used to, Father Mullen wasn't that long in the parish and he used to play the guitar and we used to go in and out of the chapel with him. And that specific day, he took me and my friend out in his car. He had to go and do a few bits and pieces. And it always sticks in my mind, on the way back up the Falls Road in the back of his car, he stopped to speak to somebody. And my the, all I remember about it was the man must have been telling to be careful. And he said to the man, the bishop told me to stay in and keep my head down. And that always stuck in my head, him saying that. And at the time, it didn't mean anything to me. But when we started trying to find out and what you'd done that day, I remember that day from my daddy, both my mummy, till the next day, every minute of it, because it just is embraced in my mind. But um, so... I was friendly with Father Mullen. We used to go up to his house. He had a wee housekeeper and she used to give us lemonade and biscuits. But um, I don't know, I'm going off there. Sort of lost it a wee bit. <laughs> See, when that happened, like when on the 9th of August, like before that, pretty had the soldiers kind of been, they had been welcomed, obviously, in nationalist areas up to a certain point. And then something. Make, oh, my mum used to make him tea and sandwiches and all. Every night, and they were up because there was entries in between the houses. And Howard and Anna Brady was their neighbour next door. They used to come every night and uh, 
get a cup of tea and a sandwich and have a yarn. And Anna Breen was actually able to say that they bought my mummy a present when they were leaving the regiment before the Paris came in. And they gave her a bunch of flowers. And she was raging because she had rather had her present than her bunch of flowers. I don't know what the present was. There was always a black horse with a clock in the middle of it. Whenever knew if that was the present to give her, or she won it in bingo because she so had bingo. Was that a different regiment? And then they left, and then the Paras came in the Balmurphy after. They that? left. It was when the Paras came in to me. I could be wrong, but in my memory, it was when the Paras came in. That's when things got very bad. And basically, it just literally felt like it, it happened overnight. And you see, whenever you started going around knocking on the doors, when you had come together down, say, after the meeting in St. Mary's, like, what was that like? Because it, it kind of like from what I was kind of reading about it and from watching the videos and all about you all talking about it, it just seemed like there was just new pieces of the puzzle coming in. The more you dug, the more you were finding out about it. The more we we had people who were saying the same mummy, the scene in Springfield Park. One said, this, see, my sister, Joan, the one I was with, she's no memory whatsoever of that day at all. None whatsoever. She doesn't know if she's seen, I think she says, maybe seen something. Or her, she was in somebody's house and it was to heard somebody talking and it freaked her and all memory of it left her. And uh, we have somebody said, a uh, cousin of mine, he said he seen mummy walking down the street with John by the hand, and there were hers in the house at the bottom of the street. They said she was standing, shouting, giving us people up there need help. We need to get up and help them. They're going to be murdered and all this. She was, she she didn't realize when she was giving her statement that we were going to read them, and she more or less said mummy was a mouthpiece. And uh, then God love her. When she came to court, she had she apologized to us for it and just said, "Don't worry about it," because her witness statement was very good. So that, in a sense, was and there's it was that many different things, and we actually thought that we might have been able to connect Joan, but she could have maybe found out where she was or what. The woman on the brain next door said, "My mommy gave Joan to her." And she took her down home through the houses in Spring Hill. Why she did or not, that's her take on it. And there's nobody disproving it. I say, except for the cousin who said, Mommy brought her up to Springfield Park. And Anna thinks, we don't know if she was brought up Springfield Park and brought down. And then she gave her to Anna. Or she gave her to Anna and then come up looking for me. But as I say, there's some things we thought when we went in the inquest naively. I myself and a few of us, the way you see it all on TV and get into court, we thought that was going to happen. And you're sitting there going, why is he not saying this? And why is he not saying that? And it was so frustrating. And they're saying, but this isn't a court of law, that this is court, but it's an inquest, it's just a thing. No, she'll take all the information she, she can, and she can't even say they were murdered. Do you know what I mean? So that, in a sense, was a shock for us, and we didn't understand that it 
took us a while to, to sort of settle down and realise that things we knew, they couldn't bring it up because they said it could maybe open doors to them and ask them different questions and all this, all legal jargon, which went right over our heads. But in saying that, say, we went, most of us went every single day and done the best we could. I think we were over, well over 100 days in court. And I think it went pretty well. My heart went out to our witnesses. It was horrendous. Those MOD solicitors, ah, they trailed them for, they come in in wheelchairs, they come in in walking sticks and everything. And they tried their best to make them out to be liars and you don't remember. And they couldn't even say something in innocence and they would jump all over it. We couldn't please, we couldn't thank them people enough for what they've done for us because I had a brother who was a witness and he couldn't even go to court. And they had to just go on his statement. They actually had to send the coroner's court to his house. He's in, he has a lot of health problems. But I don't think I'd have coped if a member of my, fam- my immediate family had a stand up there. I think it would have killed us. It definitely would have, it would have killed me the fact the way they were talking. They were like, they were so determined to prove that our loved ones were not innocent, that they were there because should, if they're not, what I took out of it, it wasn't a case that they were trying to say, they were saying they weren't innocent. Like one soldier come in, I think it was your man Jackson or it was one of the other ones, I'm not even sure. He comes in and what he said was, the like of my mom, I can see somebody like 10 yards up the field from her was firing at the army and she was a legitimate target. Now, where do you get that one from? Like that's like me walking down the street and somebody opens the door and fires at a peeler, so they shoot me because they think I'm, I have something to do with it. You're just an innocent person. So their their take on it was ridiculous, and they were really, really, yeah, I tell you, yes, they earned their money. And the best of it was, see, when you used to go tell at first, when you used to go for the PHs, I think you call it, and preliminary hearings, we used to be going mad. We used to think the coroner's court know the people from the coroner's court we thought they were the MOD we're saying do you hear him do you hear him it's because they were saying things we didn't like and uh, and it was actually Patty had to sit us down and say no it is this man is neutral he has to tell it by the law he's not saying this he's tell he has to keep the judge right because we were ready for lynch in the poor man honest to god it really and it turned out he was just doing a job and done a very good job. Mr. Rooney, you called him. I think he was just made a QC there last week. But given that was us, we we had no uh, political background. We had no knowledge, no proper teaching even. Well, I didn't. I didn't, I didn't go back to school. I went back to school for about two months because the teacher, the school sent word home. It didn't matter if you had a uniform or not, just come to school. So I had my uniform from the year before, but my mummy always knitted our cardigans and jumpers for school. So I found a grey cardigan in the house, and you're supposed to have a navy one, and I put it all went to school. So our teacher went out this day, 
and uh, we were just off in the carry-on. And a nun came in from next door and she'd give off and, uh, about us being noisy. And she pulled me out in the front of everybody and she said, what are you doing wearing that cardigan? I says, the headmistress says I could wear it because as long as I came to school, oh, not at all. Take it off and I wouldn't take it off. So then she brought me into the next classroom where all the real smart ones were and made me stand in the corner with my face under the wall uh, for wearing the jumper and not taking it off. Tried to speak the rest of the year. I never went back. And my friend went to St. Louise's, so me and her baked together and we'll be caught off. <laughs> See, after the three days and there's 11 people dead, like, and just to kind of go back to what you were saying there about the way that the MOD solicitors or whatever were, were trying to kind of paint the victims as some way not being innocent victims yeah. what was it like in the aftermath of the killings like that the army had this like kind of internal inquiry or whatever and just were saying that everyone had been holding guns or something like that they had an inquest now again what happened is we got word that my mommy was murdered my daddy had a goal and identifier that morning um, Mr. Heyman across the street took him down. As you can imagine, the house was mad. We were screaming, we girls. And then a car rigged the door and took us away. So we were away. All, we all came back one after another because my daddy's family came from the south of Ireland. So one went to Slego, one went to Dublin, one went to Tipperary, one went to Monaghan. So eventually, as I say, we came back. But the army used to come in and raid the house all the time and score their names. Oh, no, not their names, no score, uh, IRA, all scumbags and whatever. And my daddy tried to tell them off one day and they hit him with the butt of the rifle. And like, we were all, like, you take it, my, I had a sister of 15, I was 14, one at 12, one at nine, one at three. My sister, my daddy made my oldest sister, who was married to the Brit, to go back to England because she was only mar- she was only married a year and she just had a new baby and one thing another. My other brother, my eldest brother, he uh, he was sort of was there but was in and out, and then he left and went to Holland. So we were basically on our own in the house. The other brother was an alcoholic and he had to drink bad and he lived in this friend's house. And um, so, as I say, we were a house full of wee girls who didn't know why they were coming or going, who their mummy done everything for. So then they had them coming in, raiding, smashing up the house for all we had, like smashing up the house, playing death bugles outside the door. And then if they seen you in the street, they were singing that song, Where's Your Mama Gone? And it was horrendous, but you just, you didn't know what to do. You didn't even grieve. I don't think any of us grieved because we didn't know how to. We didn't know what to do. My daddy just lost it. I would say the day after Bloody Sunday, he, uh, I remember it well, it was snowing and we hadn't proper shoes to go to school in the snow. So we had cap off. And I remember we were sitting, all sitting, my oldest brother was there. and. Uh, we were all sitting around the fire and my daddy came in and he started making this strange noise. And I thought he was keeping us going. And I started laughing, but turned out he was, he took it. He just heard about bloody Sunday and it took a nervous breakdown, ended up in the mental institution for um, 
six weeks. And I then didn't get sent to school because I had to stay home and mind the young, the youngest, Irene, and keep the house clean as best I could and make dinners. 14. A 14-year-old 14 now is it? 14-year-old with big boobs and big bums for... I've still run about my best. <laughs> but that was that was a part of life. So you didn't realize, you didn't understand what was happening to you. And that was basically it. Mommy had sisters and brothers, but nobody had much then. It used to make me very angry because I always felt they could have done more for us, but they didn't. But now when I look back, they never had it, but they probably didn't have very much themselves. So maybe it was hard to come up and see this house full of kids who hadn't got very much and they couldn't donate too much. So it was easier to stay away. It's like business. What impact did it have on like your family and the other families as well that the army had come out and all the media reports were all about the people who they had shot being in the IRA or being shooting at them or whatever at the time? Well, it was horrendous for every, everybody's more or less to say. Every, well, some of the families, they were older. The older members of the family, they sort of knew. My daddy went to court for um, compensation. And uh, at the, the original inquest, apparently they had to do the daddy, um, my mommy, Mr. Murphy, Mr. Taggart, and Noel Phillips all had to be done together because they were shot together, so their inquests were held together. And the judge just, uh, these power troopers were all sitting in the court, apparently, and a brown envelope was handed to the judge with their statements on it, and he read it, and he just called it a verdict, and that was it. And then they went for compensation, and... My daddy got £250, the barrier. But the fact of it was, then, because people didn't have much, they used to borrow, if they knew they were getting a claim, they borrowed it off the solicitor. So he owed the solicitor 350 <laughs> He never seen the 250 The solicitor's still looking at the £100. <laughs> <laughs> in, in comparison to Bloody Sunday, a year later, there was the same regiment of the Paris. Yeah. But in comparison to Balmurphy, like that there was no cameras at the time. Well, there was no cameras. And then again, also, that when they eventually got their inquest and got the truth out, they called it a 20 minutes of madness. You can't say that for Balmurphy because ours lasted three days. You take it, there was three people killed and one injured. And sorry, five people killed and one injured on the 9th of August. Then the next day you have three more, and then the next day you have another one. So basically, how is that man? They should have thought we're all those kilns and all that carry on. Especially the local priest, they would say, now come on, knock this on the head. But it seems what we've seen through our investigations and listening to people talking, it was like the the they were alone themselves. They they were brainwashed they don't they wouldn't put a foot in front of the other unless they were told so they were very staunch and they, they had these bats and all and if you shot somebody then you went you, you would have got the pat so the, maybe three or five or an each 
I never had the Muslims won the pat. And it just it just seemed that, that they just didn't really care and nobody else cared. Nobody else cared because they were able to do this and walk away. They must never dream in a million years that a wee group of people out of Ella Murphy, a wee community for all the size of it, was going to come knocking on their doors and tell them they have to come to court to tell the story. But what happened with us was because Bloody Sunday started investigating in theirs long before us, they were always that wee bit ahead of us, which meant I remember being in Derry on the day they got their apology and I was delighted for them, but I'd be amused. And I thought, they'll never apologize twice. So when we, it comes our turn, it could be completely different. Same with the soldiers, all right. There should have been more soldiers for Bloody Sunday uh, charged and be getting prepared to be brought to court. So they learned from Bloody Sunday. So every soldier came in, kept saying they don't remember, they don't know. These were soldiers who served in the army for 10, 20 years with each other, but they couldn't remember their names. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know nothing. They really were well polished. And like you take it, our solicitors are away. We're not allowed to talk to our witnesses, but yet their witnesses were given all the information that we had on them. During the inquest, say, they were given information in advance. They were given that in advance and they were able to read over it and they were able to tell them what to say and what not to say. You see one of the most, kind of, aside from reading the the witness statements and stuff about how the murders occurred, but then, then a really horrific thing about it as well is how, like, so that what you mentioned there, that the soldiers had a kind of sweepstick going for kills and were putting on bets mm-hmm. and how the victims were treated after they were shot is yeah. horrific. It is. And like you take it, my mummy was shot, I believe, one to more times in the head. But she was always she was also shot in the hand, shot in the shoulder, and her thigh. It was a massive hole in her thigh. So why was there a need to keep on shooting? John Taggart's daddy was shot 14 times. His body bounced on the ground. said His body literally was lifted off the ground and fired that many shots into him. Noel Phillips, he was only shot in the hip, which would have been in the grip, but it was only like a flesh wound. But when his body was found, he had a bullet on both sides of his head, which looked like he was... Um, the close range, he was executed. So you, you can't you can't make these up these things up. You know what I mean? Even Father Mullen, Father Mullen went out waving the hanky. First, when Father Mullen got up to come away, he raised his hand again, and the first bullet went in there, and it's underneath his arm, and then another one in his back. Frank Quinn was literally lying face down and got a bullet in the back of the head. And apparently the bullet was still, you could see a wee mark on his head. What, what was it all made of? And then to come this great army, who the be- are to be the best in the world, to come in and to stand and tell deliberate lies. Are they that great? Are they not proud of what they've done? 
I'd be ashamed and that's why they can't tell the truth because they know what they've done was 100% wrong. So they come in and let on they didn't remember, they didn't know and they weren't there and they didn't know this one, they didn't know that one and they wouldn't even let on. I, I go back and check, except for one soldier who shot Ed Dufferty and he sat in court and he told and he insisted that Eddie was a man that was throwing a nail bomb at him and he fired at him, and he was done for two solid days. But he was leaving them with South Wade open because any doctor he was shot in the back. And they used every trick in the book to say he, he made a third and turned. But see, as he was, they were talking, he started off having Eddie standing behind the, the barricade till he had Eddie up in the top of it with a petrol bomb. So if he shot him with a petrol bomb and it was lit, why did the bomb burn? Why there was no burn marks on Eddie? There was no petrol on Eddie. So it's as if they realized. So he came in on the third day and the MOD said to him, Do you think maybe that as for a split second you made it took your eye off the ball and you made a hit Eddie by accident? It could have been the fellow was stamp beside him. He says, and that day that at that time, he says, and the way things were, very likely that that has happened. Is that the soldier was so in a tractor or something, was he? Uh, that means he and can't get charged. Was I, actually, when I was reading um, through a part of his statement, and actually I had to read it a couple of times because I think his statement finished up that he said that the notebook that he kept was stolen by a frog or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have yeah. to go back and double check that because it still doesn't even sound <laughs> real. But like, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, sure, we have the soldier now at the minute that we are trying to still get him, and he, other soldiers have placed him in a sentry at the front. Who realistically he could have been the shooter who shot in the field and killed my mommy or killed Mister Tiger or whatever. But they've they've sent for him. By three times, and they use every excuse in the book not to come, or you have to, the one that could do it on video, and they still do the same, and they let on the shake. One gave a statement, and he was drunk, and the judge refused to accept it. One sent them a letter, a, a, a note from his own doctor to say that he couldn't make it, and the judge threw it out, said, no, that's not good enough, I want a proper invest, uh examination this man to see why he can't come in. But they just they keep making excuses, keep delaying and delaying and delaying. The, we actually waited seven years from we were told we were getting an inquest that we actually went in. And every time that judge said, I want A, B and C for four weeks' time, and they walked in in four weeks' time and she'd say, where's the information? Haven't got it. Why have you not got it? Don't know. Then they said they haven't got it. I haven't got it yet. They're working on it. Is that Until you think that's partly, partly because they're trying to cover up what happened and oh, also like because it was like a kind of state state kind of endorsed killing? Yeah. Because you take it, you've got the Second World War, the First World War, and the history books are full of everything in it. And the names of the soldiers and where they bore and what they've done and what they didn't. And all of a sudden, and Belfast or in the north of Ireland. Sure, there's no there's no records except they took them all out and burned them. Was well, so, there anything about the inquest that you were that you were happy about? Like, are you in a better place now than you were beforehand? 
Well, we like to think we are. We want, we really think we do. We think we sort of showed it. Because the way we went in until we knew this was our one and only chance. We were never going to get an investigation. So we knew our, this was the only way we were going to get anybody brought to court to tell the truth. So we think we've done enough. But again, we don't know. We have to wait. We put it this way. Say 75% that we believe we should be all right. But who's to say, look, the way Bloody Sundays went. Do you know what I mean? They come out and apologise, but they still come out and say that wee boy had the nail bomb in his pocket. Do you know what I mean? It's just it's just not fair. So, so you just would, don't know. Yeah. Would you be kind of still pushing for getting an apology from whoever the Prime Minister is? No, it is. Apology doesn't. I couldn't care less about apologies because no, it is. They can't bring my mummy back and they would need to do a full investigation and get the truth out there, know what they've done, and then they can apologise to me. See, up to then, not interested. Because apologies, nothing. I could sit here and say to you, oh, I'm really sorry, I thought I was to meet you at 12 o'clock and I was late. You're going to say, that's great, no problem, move on. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I think, apologies, nothing. It's no good. All right, it's great for the bloody Sunday families. And it came in hand with them and it's been cleared. I just believe I would have loved my mummy to be here today. All right, she would have been 80-odds. But there's grannies out there. To, there's people that are living to 100 now, over 100. What's to say my mummy couldn't have still been alive? So I think at the end of the day, they had no right to take my mummy's life or anybody else's life. Just because they could. That was my mommy. My mommy now has, she had eight children. She has about 40 grandchildren and about 20 great grandchildren. And my mommy had red hair and she had a chair with red hair. But yet, you want to see the many grandchildren she has with red hair? In fact, her great granddaughter, who I named, the downstairs where a map of red hair. So, and she would have loved that. Because see, our first grandchild, he was the Brit's son. He, uh, he was born with red hair. And I remember the day the telegram came and she stood on the steps of our house and she waved and she said, I've got a grandson and he's got red hair. So how can they sleep at night knowing what they took my mummy's life away and took us left us worth basically nothing. After my mommy was killed, we were trailed up because we didn't know where to go. We didn't know how to fit in. My daddy, my daddy basically had to drink as well because he he couldn't cope. He because my mommy done everything. My mommy made dinners, cleaned the house. We never done nothing. Even she didn't help us either because when she died, we didn't know how to clean the house. We didn't know how to make dinners. And I done it trying to remember the way she done it. And I tried to do it. And you, you get there in the end. And it's hard. And we are very close family. But we did have a very, very hard time. Like, we take it. My mummy died in 71 and I was 14. I was married with a child in 1975. Do you know what I mean? I was only just turned 18 when I married. So my husband was only 17. In those days, 
basically there was nothing else for you to do. But there was a whole world out there. And if your mommy had been there engaging and directing you, but we had nobody. I think that's actually a nice way I'd actually finish it because something that happened in 1971, it kind of, people could be looking at it thinking that just happened ages ago and it's kind of history, but really like it's not history. When you're st- we're still sitting here having talking about it and you're talking about your family and that your mummy yeah. should, you know, could still be alive today. It's not history. Like, when you see, but I say to anybody who's sort of like I've done an own show as well, and I just say, what a bit of it was your mum? But when we sat in court, I'll just finish on this, but I thought I knew everything. I sort of protected my family from a lot of the stuff. I had to sort of break things gently to them at the time when we were going into court. But I got the shock in my life when a soldier was given evidence. And they said, tell him, he said, had he seen my mommy? And they said, tell him, did you see her face? And he turned around and said, no. He says, well, how did you see her face when you seen her being carried in? She was piggybacked in on the back of a soldier. Now, so her head was flat forward and he couldn't see her face, but he seen all the blood running down the front of the soldier. Now, how did a dead woman get herself up on the back of a soldier to be carried from the sergeant until Henry Taggart. Why did they even bring her into Henry Taggart because she was already dead? Why was she not brought straight to the hospital? Now that completely floored me because I, in my head, I had him with my mommy on his back running around Henry Taggart glorifying what they had done to my mommy. And I just, that in itself, that's why apologies are no good. How can you apologize for that? She's never done it, barbaric. Do you know what I mean? So, as I say, I'm going to stop something because I'm going to end up having myself upset. <laughs> You're a gentleman. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to my story and to pass it on to other people. And the more people it knows, the better, because it's the only way the world's going to know that these bad people done to our loved ones. Thank you. Thank you, Bridge. This episode of the Rebel Matters podcast was presented by me, Anne Carlan, and produced by Vicky Langan. The Rebel Matters podcast is 100% funded by our followers over on Patreon and we are very grateful for that support. If you'd like to become a patron, then you can find us on www.patreon.com forward slash Rebel Matters where you can see the various tiers of support that you can choose from. Every single bit of support that we get here at the Rebel Matters podcast means a lot to us and really does help to keep the show on the road. Anyway, that's all for me this week. So, Gajian Kedarella Akarja, Slan Gafoil, August Kenny Fury.